If you have your Bibles, I would uh, ask you to turn to Psalm chapter 15. Psalm chapter 15. After Brian so uh, masterfully spoke and preached the word last week from Psalm 2, I thought through where we could go next, and there was a lot that was on my heart after Psalm 2. It's a devastating psalm. It shows us the depravity of man in three stanzas, shows us the hope that we have in the one stanza at the very end. But even in that stanza, it's still pregnant with the wrath of God coming. So there's kind of a question of, well, who can stand in the presence of God? Who, who can even have a right relationship with him? And Lo and behold, that's the question that's asked in Psalm 15. So I figured that would be a great place to go right after Psalm 2. Based on the fact that God is holy, based on the fact that he alone is king and sovereign, and we are lowly servants, lowly slaves, how can we stand in his presence? How can we enter his gates? How can we be with him? That's the question that's asked in Psalm 15. Along the same lines, I I thought through not only how we can approach him and how we can be with him, but I also thought through the issue of um, desiring to be close with him. Do we even desire to be close with him? Uh, In honor of the Anchored Conference that's going on right now that many of our uh, members are at, um, Rick Holland, the pastor who put on the Resolve Conference and now has started the Anchored Conference. I remember a, an analogy he gave, an illustration he gave one time when he was preaching uh, from Philippians chapter 1, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And he gave an analogy that really fits well for uh, myself and just thinking through this last week, my wife and I were able to celebrate our anniversary and thinking through marriage, thinking through uh, the blessing of marriage, the closeness of marriage, the personal relational aspect of marriage. Rick Holland gives this example where uh, he's done so many weddings. He did our premarital counsel. He's done so many premarital counseling situations. And he, he always says, um, what would it be like if in that counseling situation, uh, the couples, instead of talking about each other and, and we cannot wait to get married, we cannot wait to become one, we cannot wait to be together and to live life together and to enjoy this next season What if in that premarital time, in the engagement period, what if all they were talking about was the things that they would get by being married? Like, oh, I can't wait to move into our new apartment. You should see the the drapes. You should see the carpet. It's amazing. You should see, we have a garbage disposal. It's so awesome. The dishwasher is bigger than we thought it was going to be. And Rick's sitting there going, yeah, but you can't wait to get married to your husband. You can't wait to get married to your wife, right? Oh, yeah, but but, but you really should see the location. It's right next to a Chipotle. It's going to be amazing. Something would be off. What about if they got married? What if Hannah and I, for our wedding anniversary, what if uh, instead of taking a picture together, if I handed somebody a camera and said, here, can you take a picture? And I held up the marriage license and the certificate and said, look, I'm married. And Hannah's off in the background like, hey, I'm, I'm here. What if we are infatuated with the idea of being married, but not with the person we are married to? I think that we tend to do that, and I think tend is actually a very uh, easy word, a very um, low-key word. I think we, it's the majority of what we do. Uh, the majority of our experience with the Lord and our relationship with Him is spent looking at the idea of having a relationship with Him instead of actually being reconciled in a passionate, intense relationship with Him. 
You remember John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, Jesus says in the high priestly prayer. This is eternal life. And if we were to answer, what is eternal life? How do you define eternal life? Most uh, evangelical Bible-believing Christians would say eternal life is not going to hell. And that's true, but not fully. That's only true in part. You guys know the, uh, the whole fire insurance idea? That, oh, see, I believe in Jesus, so I have a get-out-of-hell-free card, and I'm done. I'm set. I don't need to do anything else. Is that what Jesus said? No. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you. Yes, eternal life, in order to know Jesus, you have to be out of hell to be able to know Jesus. Because if you are in hell, you only know the wrath of the Father. So you have to be out of hell, but getting out of hell is not the fundamental primary reason Jesus died on the cross. The fundamental reason that Jesus died on the cross was to reconcile you and me to the Father so that we could have a right relationship with Him. But so often we look at just the connection that we have with God. Oh, I'm with God. I'm with God. Yeah, we're, we're buddies. Uh, we're cool. He saved me. I believe in Him. And I'm not going to hell because of that. The reality is we were made for a relationship with him. And in order to deepen our relationship with him, it's like any other relationship. If you get married and you say, okay, I never have to do anything. I never have to work. Don't have to talk to you. Don't have to set aside time. Don't have to sacrifice. Don't have to be selfless. In a marriage, that's going to go nowhere. So too with our relationship with God. I think we get saved. And then we think, I'm done. I, I did all I have to do. And because we stop working to deepen our relationship with him. I think we just kind of look to, yeah, I'm with him. Yeah, I'm married, but I don't really care about that person because it takes work to do that. That's one of the reasons why I think most professing believers love to articulate the connection that, that they have with God and not the relationship that they have with him because relationships take work. When you get married or in any, in any relationship, both of you need to work. Right? You're both 100% sinners and 100% needing to work. When you are in a relationship with God, it's not the same way. He doesn't need to do any work. He doesn't need to sacrifice or ask forgiveness for things that he's done to hurt us. We are the ones that need to do the work. Once he has saved us, and he is doing the work of sanctifying us, obviously, but if we never ask the question, how can I grow in my relationship with him? Once I'm joined to Him, how can I continue to become closer to Him? If we're not asking that question, I think we're in a serious place where the profession might not be a reality. When we are joined to God, obviously He doesn't have to do anything to change on His end. We are the ones that need to change. And the reality is Psalm 15 is all about these adjustments, these changes that need to take place, not if we want to be saved, But if we want to deepen our relationship with our Savior, that's what Psalm 15 is all about. So with that as a little introduction, let's read the text. Five short verses. A Psalm of David. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness... And speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue. 
nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He puts uh, no, he does not put his money out at interest. He puts no interest onto his money, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. To outline this psalm, it's really three simple points. There's the question at the beginning, the answers, and then the ultimate promise at the end. Number one, it's the ultimate question for us. Number two, it's the practical answers that are given to that question. And number three, it's the greatest promise that we could possibly have given to us at the end. So we'll take that as our outline and we'll dive into this psalm with number one. Starting with number one, the ultimate question. This question was really raised with Psalm 2 last week. If God is king, if God is sovereign, how can we be in his presence? How can we abide with him? Verse 1 is this ultimate question. And David is directing this question to Yahweh, to his sovereign Lord. O Lord, who is the one that can abide in your tent? Now you, if you're anything like me when you're reading the Bible, I look at that and I say... um, I think God could do a lot better than a tent. (laughs) Who could abide in your tent, God? Um, God owns the world. God made the world. Can't he do better than a tent? (laughs) But we need to understand what the word tent is signifying. It's signifying the tabernacle. It's signifying a place where the presence of God dwelt. And so David is saying, I want to be with God where he is. He says, I also want to be on his holy hill. So he wants to be in his tent in the tabernacle. I also want to dwell on your holy hill. That's more than likely a reference to the temple, to Mount Zion, and ultimately, potentially, to heaven. And I'll show you why. It's very interesting. These two questions, they're really just one question. Who can dwell with you? But they're said in two ways that are purposefully opposite. They're they're a spectrum. David starts by saying, O Lord, who may abide in your tent. Abide is a Hebrew word referring to sojourning or or spending the night someplace. It's a temporary residence. Who can hang out with you for a night or two and then be on his way? The word dwell, as opposed to abide, is a word for permanently dwelling one place. So, David says, who can hang out with you for a night in the tent? And who can stay with you forever in your holy hill, on your holy hill? The tabernacle would move. That's why it was uh, a temporary place. So David says, I want to be with you as you're moving. I want to be with you where you go. But I also want to be with you where you are forever. Whether it's the temple on Mount Zion or ultimately whether it's heaven David says, in the here and now, I want to be with you, and then I want to be with you. Who can do this? That's the question that all of us need to ask. Who can dwell with God? The answer that's given, number two on your outline here, the practical answer that's given to the question, who can dwell with God? Who can be in an intimate relationship with Him? Who can be with Him in unbroken fellowship? The answer is given to us in verses 2 through 6, or through 5. And it's very interesting because 
you were to ask a Bible-believing Christian, how do you get closer with God? How do you develop closeness with God? I think the typical answer is, you know, go out into the wilderness someplace, go to a mountaintop someplace, get by yourself, wear comfortable clothes, get a really strong cup of coffee, and just hang out with a journal. You know, you've got to have a, a look at the sunset or the sunrise. Not that any of that's bad, right? Those are great things. And you can enjoy the Lord and be satisfied by Him with those things. But I think we tend to, when we're asking about how do we develop a closeness in our relationship with God, we tend to go towards experiential um, enjoyment of creation, sitting, almost kind of turning our brains off and just kind of um, feeding off of everything that He has given to us. And again, you could be satisfied in that. But Psalm 15 would tell us the exact opposite. If you want to be close with God, you have to do things. You have to work. You can't just sit there and somehow get closer to Him. You have to do things. You have to work hard. This psalm answers the question, who can do this? The the psalm does not answer the question, why should we care about being close with God? The psalm doesn't answer that question. And the reason why it doesn't is because that answer is all over the scriptures. Why should we care about being close with God? Why don't we just, hey, get saved, fire insurance, I'm done and I'm good to go. Why should being close, being intimately uh, enjoying the fellowship with Jesus Christ, with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, why is that something we should be craving? Why is that something that Paul says in the New Testament he's lusting after? Why is that something that we should have a burning desire for? I want to take you to one place that I think demonstrates the why. Go to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Again, the Bible is so filled with the answer to the question, why should we care about being close to God? Who cares about being close to Him? Psalm 15 doesn't answer that because it assumes we know, oh, the nearness of my God is my good. And we'll see that throughout the Psalms as we continue not only this morning, but through the summer. Why should we care? Uh, this is a really great story. Uh, I wish we had more time to just hang out in this story. Second Samuel chapter 6. David is wanting to move the ark to the new captured city of the Jebusites, a city that you know well called Jerusalem. He wants to set up the temple there. He wants to have a new worship center and put the ark of the covenant where God dwells. He wants to put that box, you know that the word ark, In your Bibles, that Hebrew word just literally means box, but instead of translating it as such, because that's so boring, they needed to make a a cooler word for it. So imagine if that's what we taught Chelsea. Like, what did Noah build? He built a box. Like, that's boring. He built an ark. Oh, that's cool. So you have to say it's an ark, not a box. But this is all it is. It's the box of God. It's the box that God dwells in, in a very um, uh, practical presence, a, a way that would be able to be seen and understood. And, and so they're moving this box. You know this story. Verse 1, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. I guess it doesn't take a lot to be a chosen man. That's awesome, 30,000 people. David arose and went with all the people who were with him, and they, they go from this city to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. 
Now, why would they have all the description of this is the ark of God and then all of these different things called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who's enthroned above the cherubim? Why would they bring those things in? It's a description not only of the box, it's a description of the grandeur of God. And the reason why I think that they put that in there is because what happens right after these verses is people forgetting the grandeur of God. They start to take God too lightly. And just like Nadab and Abihu did, as Brian referenced last week in Leviticus chapter 10, when you take God lightly, bad things happen to you. That's also the crux of Psalm 15. How do you come before the Lord in worship? If you take him lightly as you enter his presence, you are doing uh, wrongly. So, verse 3, they place the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So twice we've been told it's on a cart. There's a reason why you need to know that. Verse 4, they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the household of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood, and the lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, so we have this ark that's on a cart being dragged by oxen. You say, well, that's not too bad. It is because it's not what God had required. God had required that the ark be carried on poles. Uh, I think the, the modern illustration of this would be um, during a funeral when the, when the uh, casket is brought down the middle on pole bearers. Imagine if instead of pole bearers, the pole bearers are very specially unique people, right? They're people that are close, family, uh, friends of the loved one who has passed away. What if instead of pole bearers, what if whoever was heading up the funeral just decided, I'm going to go to Lowe's and grab myself a big dolly, strap it to a dolly, and just kind of wheel it down the middle of the aisle and set it? I'm getting it down there, right? That's all that matters. Just get it to the front. That would be so incredibly rude and disrespectful. That's what's happening here. God said, put it on a pole, have special people carry the poles that carry the ark. And David says, you know what? We've got to get it there faster. My men are tired. Let's put it on a, on a cart carried along by oxen, and they go through a threshing floor, which is going to have a bunch of wheat and possibly even some chaff and some just loose... Basically think of going through like the bear pit, you know, with all those uh, peanut shells and sawdust on the ground. Oxen aren't going to do too well with that. And so they start to slip. And the ark starts to fall, and Uzzah reaches out towards the ark, verse 6, and takes a hold of it. For the oxen nearly upset it, nearly tossed it over. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. Yes, he touched the ark, which he was not supposed to do, but he was irreverent regardless. His irreverence, his um, flippancy in the way that he went before the Lord causes his death right next to the ark of God. Verse 8, David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and the place is called Para-Uzzah, outburst Uzzah, to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day. Good, that's what you're supposed to do when things like this happen. And he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? 
David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. So as they're walking along, the ark almost falls. As it dies, David says, That's, I'm calling it quits. Looks for, you know, the, the nearest pit stop. Let's just set the ark of the covenant down there. We'll pick it up later. I'm done with this. And they find a place with an owner named Obed-Edom. He's a Gittite, which means he's from Gath. Who else do we know is from Gath? Goliath was from Gath. Obed-Edom takes the ark. And verse 11 is key here. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And we can put in there, because it was there, the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God being there. Just because God's dwelling place is in a house of somebody who couldn't care less that it's actually there, just because the nearness of God is in that house, that house is being blessed. David hears it and says, well, we need that. Goes back, gets it, and look at what he does this time. He goes with gladness, end of verse 12. Verse 13, and so it was when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces. Notice who's not there anymore. No cart, no oxen pulling the cart. There are oxen in this next part of the story, but they're not pulling anything. After six paces, David would sacrifice an ox and a fatling. For the first time, as David's moving the presence of the Lord... He's doing it with flippancy. He's doing it with just a um, carefree, who cares, let's just get it to where it's supposed to go. Not doing it the right way. Not doing it with reverence. Uzzah is struck down. David is fed up. Sets the Ark of the Covenant with Obed-Edom and says, I'm done. Finds out, oh, the nearness of God is good. It's blessing all who are around it. So let's go get the presence of the Lord. Let's get that presence and bring it back. So they go, but this time they do it the right way. They bear it up with the poles. And every single six paces, they sacrifice an oxen and a fatling. From flippant to fearful reverence. And they say, no, we want, we want the presence of the Lord with us. Just a, an illustration of the presence of the Lord being our good. That's why in Psalm 15, David says, I want to be with you where you are. I know what happens when I'm close to you. And I want to stay close to you. I want to stay close to you. Back in Psalm 15, once the question is asked, how can I be closer to you? How can I stay close with you? I want to be close. The practical answers are given, and they are given to us. They're commands. There's things we have to live out. And I want to just preface all of these commands by saying very clearly, this is not about justification. This is not about salvation. You don't have to do these things to be saved. Psalm 15 is about sanctification, not salvation. Psalm 15 is about how we live once we are saved. So please don't think, I need to do these things in their entirety or else I cannot be saved. This is all about once you are saved, you live out your sanctification, you live out the salvation you've been given in such a way that you continue to grow closer with God. Ultimately, as one Puritan writer says, the faith that works does not save. If you think... I have faith that must work to earn God's favor. That's not saving faith. That's not faith. That's works. But the faith that saves 
true saving faith does work. And we've talked about that before in Philippians chapter 2. So this isn't about salvation. This is being close with God. And obviously it's not spatially being close with him, right? It's not like I want to be closer to Brian. I want to get closer physically with him. It's relationally close. I want to be relationally close. Again, the psalm doesn't answer why should we want that? But there are other psalms that do. Let me just give you a couple. Psalm chapter 73, verse 28. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Psalm 1611, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So I want to be in his presence to have fullness of joy. Psalm 27, 4, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Glorious and mighty are awesome in beauty, and you're greatly to be praised. We want to dwell in his presence. That's what we want. Psalm 84, 11 says the same thing, that the Lord God is a sun and a shield. He cares for, he takes care of the believer. And they are satisfied in his presence. We want to be in his presence. So, what are the practical answers? Let me give you the six that are here in Psalm 15. The, the six practical answers to how we are supposed to be the people that would be able to dwell with God, to be able to have closeness with Him. There are six of these, and they're really split up very well into into couplets. There's a lot of different ways that we could split this psalm up, because if you look in verse 2, the psalmist begins, David begins by saying, the person who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Those three verbs are participles. Um, The one who is walking with integrity, the one who is working with righteousness, and the one who is speaking truth. So it's an ongoing action. And those three aspects of your character are really the the umbrella of Psalm 15, of the the man or woman that can abide and dwell with the Lord. But I also think that you can split these up into couplets. I think that there are six different couplets, and I want to take it that way. I think you can see this as we go along, these six different aspects of your character that the psalmist will give us as an answer to who who can actually dwell with God. Number one, uh, the man and woman of character. The man or woman of character. This is in verse two. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness. This is the banner that flies over the entire rest of the character qualities. Is blameless, you could say. Walks with integrity and works righteousness. Blamelessly doing what is right, I think the ESV would say. This is moral well-roundedness. This is um, a a person being uh, strong in almost all areas. Not uh, habitually sinning in gross immorality. Um, This is not somebody who's perfect or else the Hebrew word for perfection would have been used here. This is the idea of being above reproach. That's why the word integrity is used. Integrity, if you break it down, integer, one. They are whole. They are not hypocritical. They are not one person before one one person and then totally different. We're in a totally different face, totally different masquerade somewhere else. They are who they say they are. They are above reproach. 
and blameless. That is the person that can dwell in an intimate fellowship with God. They need to be one of character. They need to be somebody of character. Secondly, the second couplet is the end of verse 2 into verse 3. And it has to do with speech. So we have character. The person who can stand before God in intimate fellowship has to have character. And number two, has to have good speech. Their speech has to align rightly with what God would say. End of verse 2. Speaks truth in his heart, and he does not slander with his tongue. Verse 3. So again, couplet. Not only working righteousness, filled with integrity, character, now speech. I love how the psalmist says he speaks truth, you would expect, with his lips, right? That's the only way we can speak. He speaks truth with his lips. But David knows where words come from. And Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Matthew twelve thirty four. So the psalmist says he speaks truth in his heart, in the inmost parts, in the innermost area, truth abides. And so obviously truth comes out. This is seen in James chapter 3, verse 14, and it's in your discussion questions. You'll be able to look at them um, throughout the week. He speaks truth in the innermost part. That's the first part of the couplet. Second part, he does not slander with his tongue. I love the Hebrew word for slander. It's actually two words stuck together. You ready? These two words are the word for leg and the word for spy. How do you get slander from that? Word for leg, word for spy, stick them together. Kind of do that Sesame Street thing where you have one and it comes across and then you have the other and it comes across. So leg, spy, leg, spy, leg, spy, smash them together, slander. That doesn't make sense. How does that work? This is how it works. A slanderer is somebody who is a gossip. A slanderer is somebody who is trying to tear down relationships um, share the dirt that they might have on somebody. So how do you get the dirt? You use your legs and you walk around and you spy on people and you spy on them with your ears. And in doing so, you can become a slander. This is somebody who always has to be in the know. This is somebody who always has to know the latest and greatest gossip so that they are able to slander against brothers and sisters in fellowship. That's why those two words make up the word for slander. Somebody who uses their legs to run around and spy, seeking tidbits of gossip to pass on to somebody else. And can I just say this? I think that there is an aspect of that in every single human heart. All of us struggle with that to some degree or another. But those that are specifically prone to being gossips and slanders, can I just say you have the most difficult job in this day and age where gossip and slander is readily available in social media? Um, if you are a gossiper, if you are a slanderer, I would encourage you, one of the best ways that you can um, cut off your hand and throw it far from you is just stay away from social media. Get rid of the Twitter, get rid of the Instagram, get rid of the Facebook. You don't need it. And it will be prone, it's a good tool, but it will be prone to be used by, by your heart to spy without even having to use your legs. A slanderer. Devil. In the New Testament, that's the word for slander. Our enemy is a slanderer. Therefore, if we are going to be those who have an intimate fellowship with the Lord, we cannot be slanderers. Psalm 39 verse 1 says, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. 
Psalm 141, verse 3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. Those are the kind of men and women who can dwell in the presence of the Lord. Who say, no matter what, I need a guard over my lips. Where many words are present, sin is unavoidable. We must be careful what we say, how we say it, when we say it. And we looked at that in Family Bible Hour a couple weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 4. Only wholesome words can proceed. No death-giving, no uh, corrupt speech. So, the man who is to have intimate fellowship, intimate closeness with the Lord must first be a man or woman of character. Secondly, they must be a man or woman of speech that is honoring and glorifying to the Lord, speaking truth in their heart and not slandering. Third couplet has to do with relationships. It has to do with relationships, and you'll see it there at the end of verse 3. He does, doesn't do evil, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Two classes of people here, two categories. Neighbor, which ultimately is everyone. Anybody who is around you is your neighbor. doesn't matter proximity. It's just anybody who is not your family, anybody who does not have family ties. That's why ultimately friend, the word for friend, is actually the idea of a close uh, relative, a close relationship with somebody. So you've got your friends, your family, the ones that are closest to you, and everybody else. And David says, you cannot do evil or take up a reproach against your friend. You don't insult them. That's the idea of taking up a reproach. You don't do anything that would insult them or offend them. You don't bring harm to them. Instead, you're lifting them up. You're encouraging them. Are you the kind of friend when you enter a room and your friends see you, they go, uh-oh, so-and-so again. Guys, we've got to be careful what we're saying. We can't, uh, you know, are you, are you that kind of person? Or are you the kind of person that when you walk into a room, it's like a breath of fresh air. It's like, oh, they're here. That's the person that's here in Psalm 15. He doesn't do evil to his neighbor, doesn't take up a reproach against his friend, instead does the exact opposite. He does good to his neighbor. He doesn't insult his friend, but it lifts him up, exalts him, you could say. If you were to have intimate fellowship with the Lord, you must be a man or woman of character, which will lend itself to being a man or woman of good godly speech and a man or woman of good relationships, the way that you deal with others around you. Number four, if you are to be a man or woman that can dwell with the Lord in unbreakable fellowship, you need to be careful what you honor and what you esteem. Number four, the fourth couplet, verse four, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. It's a very tricky verse because we have to take it at face value. A righteous man or a righteous woman who loves the Lord will despise people. They will. Now, there's a certain way of despising them. But verse 4 says, if there is a reprobate around you, and a reprobate is just somebody who is um, categorically rejected by God. They have lived in out-and-out rebellion, sinful rebellion. It's known to everybody, and they don't care. And they are vile, particularly vile and rejected by God. Those are the people we are. If we are to be in intimate fellowship with the Lord, we are supposed to despise them. You don't hear that taught very often, right? It's more just, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin. 
It's more just that kind of idea. And yes, we are supposed to love the sinners and reach out to them. But the idea here is we should never for one millisecond desire their life. Never for one millisecond say, oh, they've got it good. Remember a couple weeks back when we were studying Psalm 1, John Calvin's quote, the truly righteous person must come to the final realization and believe it with everything that they have, that the unrighteous and wicked are truly miserable. We can't covet them. We can't love what they love. I would encourage you just to jot down Isaiah chapter 5 and Isaiah chapter 32. In Isaiah chapter 5, it's all about people that call evil good and call good evil. That's the day and age that we live in. The man of God will not call evil good. The man of God will despise what is evil and will honor those who call good, good. Isaiah 32 is the flip side, though. Isaiah 32 is the glorious day of Christ's reign when good is called good and esteemed and wickedness is punished. There is a day when it will all be flipped. As one pastor says, the Facebook likes in the kingdom will be a lot different than they are right now. What the world loves and desires is not what a man or woman of God should love or desire. The wicked are not to be envied. There is some way in which we are to hate sin and hate the way of sinners. Do you actively look at all of the media that's preaching to you 24-7? Do you actively look at what's going on around you and does your heart break over the wickedness that you see? You have to have good character, godly speech, relationships that honor the Lord. Check what you honor and esteem. Fifthly, if you were to be a man or woman of God who would have intimate fellowship with him, the next couplet, you have to be a man or woman of commitment. You have to be a man or woman of commitment. End of verse 4. He, does, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. This is the fifth couplet. Swears to his own hurt and does not change. It's the idea of Keeping your commitments. Jesus would say it a different way in the New Testament. Make your yes, yes, and your no, no. That's all this is. This doesn't mean that you should revere Jephthah, for instance. You remember he made that foolish vow where he said he would kill and sacrifice the first thing that came out of his household when he got back. Lo and behold, it was his daughter. He didn't end up killing her, but this isn't like, oh, he's a sinner, he should have been killed. This is... Um, This is you are careful what you commit to. Don't flippantly make commitments. And and can I just say this? I believe, in my experience, um, the the bigger the commitment, the more time we take to think about whether we can commit to it, right? The bigger the commitment, the more we say, I got to think about this. You don't just jump into marriage. You don't just, some people do, and you know where that leads them. Um, You don't just jump right in. You think, okay, am I going to commit? It's it's a big commitment, so I'm going to think about it. I think the area where we disobey this command the most are the little ones. Hey, I'm moving on Saturday. Can you come help? Oh, yeah, sure. And then you realize, oh, I didn't check my calendar. I shouldn't have done that. You know, the little commitments make your yes, yes, and your no, no. Even if it means hurting yourself. That's why I love this verse. You swear to your own hurt. Even if it means, man, I got a better offer. (laughs) 
I say, okay, I'm going to help Brian move on Saturday. And then somebody says, hey, do you want to come with me to, they're giving out a million dollars in some park somewhere. I don't know. Swear to your own hurt. And say, Brian, I made a commitment. I made a commitment. Here's the reality. In the way that you speak, in the way that you treat your commitments, in the way that you say yes is yes and no is no, it ultimately deals with lying or not. It's a truthfulness. It's an area of commitment. It's an area of truthfulness. And here's the reality. God can do a lot more with the truth than you can do by telling a lie. We tell lies to try and get certain things. God can do a lot more with the truth that you would tell than you can do by telling a lie. Sixthly, if we were to be men or women that would have an intimate, close relationship with God, we have to have character. We have to be careful what our speech looks like. We have to be careful in our relationships. We have to be careful with those that we honor and esteem. We have to be careful of our commitments. And finally, we have to be careful about money and greed. We have to be careful in the issues of money and greed. Last couplet, verse 5, He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Doesn't put out money at interest, cares more about people than taking advantage of them and using them to gain more money. This does not mean that you can't be a banker. This does not mean that you can't do certain business deals and things like that. What this means is you're not trying to rip people off. And the people that are trying to rip people off have greed issues, have discontentment issues, and ultimately just don't trust the Lord. They say, I got to make a buck my way instead of saying, I know God can take care of me. They don't take a bribe against the innocent knowing that they're going to get money at that person's expense. It's people before money. It's God before people and money. So if somebody ever needs help financially, don't think this is a great way I can make a buck off of them. Help them. If you don't think money is a serious issue to God, number one, it's one of the six things that he includes in the list here of things that you must have to be able to have intimate fellowship with him. Number two, just think about Ananias and Sapphira. They lied about money and God struck them down. And number three, let me just read to you. You can write it down. Read uh, later on your own time. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. You know it, but I want to read it to you to remind you how dangerous greed, a heart that lusts after money, truly is. Paul writes this, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, it's not money is the root of all sorts of evil, it's the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, so it's not all evil. People misquote that verse all the time. Love of money is the root of all evil. No. It's the love of money, not money itself. And it's not all evil. It's it's all kinds of evil. But some, by longing for it, lusting after it, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. The man or woman who is to have intimate fellowship with the Lord cares about what they do with their money and fights hard against a heart that would be filled with greed. One last little line gives us the third point on your outline, the greatest promise. The question that is given, who can dwell with the Lord? Who can have intimate fellowship with Him? 
There are six practical answers that are given. And then finally, there's a promise given. And this is where the title of the sermon comes from. It's not just fellowship that we want. It's unshakable, unbreakable fellowship that we want. And he who does these things, end of verse 5, will never be shaken. Literally in the Hebrew, he shall not be moved ever. This is the greatest promise in the world. We're going to see this come up many other places. Psalm 62, Psalm 63, Psalm 42. He who does these things will not be shaken. We don't want to be moved. We want a rock that will hold us steadfast, secure, not moving from one side to the other, even as we looked in Family Bible Hour, not tossed to and fro. So the reality is, as we look at this psalm, why would we ever want to do evil? Evil ultimately is pulling us away from God. Sin alienates us from God. So we say, great, I'm in a relationship with him. I'm connected to him because of my belief in him. But then we say, I don't want to do anything to get to know him. I don't care about him. And I can keep on living in the very thing he died to free me from. With some false hope that it will not affect our relationship. We must love God and what is right more than we love our own image, our pride, the coolness that we might have in the eyes of the world. See, I hate what the world loves, and I don't care if they think I'm crazy for that. I don't care. Steve Lawson says it this way, the key to living a holy life and living out these truths is to live a Scripture-saturated life. When God's Word dwells within a person, sin diminishes. The light of His holiness always exposes areas of darkness, driving them away. Living a righteous life requires focusing and meditating upon the glory and majesty of the Word. The knowledge of the Scriptures, when united with faith, tends to drive out the practice of sin. We'll talk about this more uh, in two weeks on Thursday. But the reality is, do we examine ourselves spiritually before we even come in these doors and attempt to enter the presence of God? Are we living a blameless and righteous life? Are there ways that we're living that aren't above reproach? In what ways have you and I attacked and slandered the character of others? It's not, did you, have you? It's, in what ways did you do it? Because we all have. Do we speak the whole truth when interacting with others? Do we use our money to help others and to glorify God? Do we care about being close with God or do we just care about being connected with Him? Because if we care about closeness with Him, we will live the kind of life that leads to intimacy with God. And that life is a life filled with hard work. But here's the reality. Psalm 15 is a whole bunch of do's and don'ts. And the reality is none of us no matter how good we might be on a good day. None of us are Psalm 15 people. In fact, the reality is, turn back over to Psalm 14. We're not Psalm 15 people, we're Psalm 14 people. We aren't the people that walk with integrity, work righteousness, speak truth in our heart, just blameless, above reproach all the time, 24-7, sinless. We're not those kind of people. We're Psalm 14 people, and I don't think it's a coincidence that Psalm 14 comes right before Psalm 15. Psalm 14, verse 1, this is us. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Every time we sin, we're saying, I wish God were dead and I could rule my life. Every time we sin, we are doing exactly what the nations do in Psalm 2. We are corrupt. We have committed abominable deeds. There is no one good, no one who does good. 
The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That is us. And the reality is, the only way that you and I could ever be accepted into the presence of God and dwell with Him is not, and please hear me clearly, it is not if we act. If you're here this morning and you say, I want to dwell with God in intimate fellowship, the answer is not, first and foremost, you must act. The answer is you must trust in the one who already acted on your behalf. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came to satisfy the righteous requirements of the law, to perfectly live out Psalm 15. What Psalm 15 demands of us, we cannot fully live out. But what Psalm 15 demands of us, it guarantees in the Messiah, in the personal work of Jesus Christ. This man is not you. This man is not me. This Psalm 15 man is not anyone who has ever lived except for Jesus Christ. And if we are to be in intimate fellowship with Him, we are to learn and grow in being like Him and living out these truths. But I'll end with this. This psalm invites us not to work, but to worship. If we walk out these doors and we just say, I've got more to do, More burden, more to do. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you because my burden is light. Yes, we have a very difficult road of sanctification, but salvation is not ours to secure. Jesus Christ secured it for us. So this psalm, ultimately when we get to the end of it, is not an invitation. Man, I got to do better. It's not an invitation to say, all right, it's time to work. It's an invitation first to say, praise the Lord that there is somebody who stands in my place. Because if he was not standing in my place, I would never be able to fulfill the law. I would always stand condemned. There would never be hope for me. Then, once we see the one who has paid the price for our sins and given us his perfect life of righteousness, Then we rest, we worship, and then and only then do we work. We do work out our salvation. And we do live out these things as intensely as possible. But only after we have worshipped and rested in Him. Father, we thank You so much for Your grace, Your love. We want to do exactly what this psalm encourages us to do right now. We are blown away. This list is staggering. Anyone in their right mind who looks at this list will have to say, I have so much work to do. I fail in every single area. There's not one area where I am righteous. There's not one area where I have this down. And God, I do pray that you would help us to grow. To grow in Christ-likeness but never to grow in Christ-likeness because we are afraid that we must be the ones to secure our salvation. God, you secured it in Jesus Christ alone. And so we rest. We work, yes, but only after we have rested in Jesus and only after we have worshipped Him and the grace that He has given to us 
So God, may you work in our hearts now to rest, to worship, and then to go out from here to work with a heart motivated by grace. For your glory we pray. Amen.